This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to Star Diary, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Greetings listeners, welcome to Radio Astronomy's Guide to the Best Things to See in the Night Sky in the Northern Hemisphere in August 2021. I'm news editor Ezie Pearson and I'm joined on the podcast today by our reviews editor Paul Manny. Hiya Ezie, how's things? Uh, going well, uh, how's uh, the stargazing been for you this month? It's been pretty grotty up until now um I, mm. I i actually got a night out last night that actually saw something i was in shock i mean i take my hat off to our reviewers who, who've got equipment to review because um it really is a challenge for them a lot of people don't realize you know when uh, you've got bad weather you you have limited gaps and of course if you're imaging something or doing something that needs dark sky you you can't do it when the, the clear skies are when the moon's up <laughs> so yeah. uh, you know so there's a lot of constraints there but uh, you know but they always manage to pull it off so uh, all hats off to them <laughs> yeah uh it's, it's always good to hear that that managing to to get out there and actually see something even despite the bad weather you know it takes a bit of effort but it's always worth it so what is your recommendations for august 2021 well, we've got two really important oppositions this month, so we will come to them, that of Saturn and Jupiter. And uh, so uh, they're really important because we get to see them uh, all the way through the night. I, I always think that's quite a funny thing, actually, because um, it's possibly that most people won't realise that when we say all through the night, if an opposition occurs in the summer, it's a pretty short night. <laughs> Whereas if it's winter time, if it occurs, then uh, you, you are talking about you know probably you know, four in the evening right through to nearly eight o'clock in the morning. So that's a very very long night. So uh, depending on whether you like short observing sessions, if you like your oppositions in the summer, that's great. You have a short period. If you like really long observing sessions, then the oppositions are better in the winter. But uh, you know. But we will come to them. But let's just start off with another planet, which is Uranus and our moon, because on, on the very 1st of August, we actually have the moon. Now, it's a day past um, last quarter, which occurred on July the 31st. So we're August the 1st now, but you need to be looking in the morning around about, I've, I've set mine for 3, 3.30, um, and you'll find the moon is directly below Uranus. Now, the moonlight will sort of wash out a lot of the stars, but often I use these as a good way of easily finding planets or other objects of interest when the moon's there. The moon is a great guide for that. So uh, you have to look, at say, quite early. So if you're, if you're an early riser, <laughs> that, that's all right. That's sort of before uh, um, you actually uh, get the uh, sunrise. You can do it before sunrise, but obviously the sky gets lighter then, so it could spoil it. The moon's about two degrees below Uranus, and Uranus obviously is uh, fainter. You'll need binoculars, but uh, you should fit them in the good field of view of 10 50s. So uh, you should be able to spot Uranus as a little tiny dot. There's a few other fields stars but you know we, we've got good guides in the uh, magazine so uh, well worth looking out for that 
So that's August the 1st. Now, as it happens, on the first, the moon is next to Uranus. The interesting thing now, and I've been watching the motion of Uranus now for um, too many years, I see too many years. <laughs> <laughs> but I've been amazed. I've watched Uranus move from Sagittarius. That shows you how long ago that was. And it's now in Aries. And so it is creeping ever closer towards Taurus. And of course, a wonderful series of conjunctions in the next decade with M45, the uh, Pleiades cluster. So it means that when the moon was next to Uranus on the first, on the second, <clears throat> it's actually to the lower right of the Pleiades and passes through Taurus. And on the third, it's directly above the Hyades and the bright well, they always say red star, the red eye of the bull. I think it's more orange, uh, yeah. uh, that Aldebaran. So, uh, you know, but, uh, so, and then the fourth, it's sort of between, it forms a bit of a triangle with the horns of the bull as well. So, uh, Taurus is quite a large constellation. Of course, you've got lots of clusters in it, which is really good. Um, but to have the added bonus of the moon passing through it as well, I always think is a, a great highlight. And I always look forward to seeing the earliest I can see Taurus rising after the summer equinox, the summer solstice, I should say. And so, uh, you know, we've, we've now got Taurus back and it's getting into a darker sky, so I'm getting excited because the, <laughs> the winter skies are heading back. <laughs> I know I'm, I'm sad, really, all those going on summer holiday and hearing me talk about the winter skies, but you have to be up in the early morning for this sort of thing. So, uh, you know, so, but I say it just tells you that the fact that you know, within a day, uh, Uranus, the moon has gone from Uranus into Taurus. Shows you how close Uranus has got to Taurus now. And I say it's uh, been a long time, but I'm quite excited for it gradually creeping along the ecliptic. So for any of our listeners who aren't sure what Paul means when it says uh, Uranus is in Aries, what he means is that the planet appears to, to be next to the constellation of Aries in the night sky. Um, and that happens because the planets all orbit in something called the ecliptic. Um, and as they go around the sun, they appear to move across the night sky and, and, and along all of the, the constellations of the, the zodiac. Um, and because Uranus takes so long to go around the sun, it really, really seems to creep across the night sky. Um, so you've got something like Mercury, which which nips around the sun every 88 days. Um, that seems to, to go across. Uh, around the sun really fast uh when you're looking out at, at mars that takes two and a half years so it it still you know whips across quite fast but something like uranus takes 84 years to go around the sun so it really really does creep along through these different constellations yes and and you know it, it's uh, to watch it creep like this it just feels it, it, at times it does feel it's inexorable <laughs> it's, mm -hmm. it's crawling along but now i'm looking at it and think wow that has really shifted so you know, mm. in the lifetime of a person you know i i always have a bit of a joke with my father and the fact that um you know dad hold on you're nearly at the age of an orbit of uranus he doesn't mm. quite really appreciate that <laughs> 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 certainly not the planet uranus i think it liked any other planet except that one <laughs> <laughs> so Uranus seems to be certainly making its moves across the night sky this month. Um, but what else is there that we should be paying attention to? Well, we, we touch on the first opposition then, because we've got Saturn at opposition on the second. Uh, it lies in Capricornus. And of course, when the, we say the lie in the constellation sort of thing, the, the stars are so far away. Uh, there's no relationship there whatsoever. It is a line of sight 
effect. But on the second, it reaches opposition. Now, the thing about opposition, it really does mean this planet is opposite the sun in the sky. So as the sun sets, then the planet rises. And then later that night, sort of thing, when the planet actually sets, the sun rises. So it literally is opposite, 180 degrees away from the sun in the sky. So we get to see it all night, which is why I mentioned earlier, but the fact that, you know, in the summer, it means you don't actually see it for that long before the sun rises again, because it's such light nights. But Saturn is a bright planet. So, you know, we can actually see it really well. And we have got the advantage of uh, not too far away is also Jupiter. And we'll come to that a little bit later on because it's at opposition this month as well. But Saturn is well worth now putting a telescope to. Having a look at the rings, you tend to find round about the time of opposition, the rings brighten an interesting effect where they actually brighten. And it's down to this opposition effect whereby it's literally in line with the sun. So they're reflecting the most light they can back from the rings from the sun. So worth looking out for that. And of course, if you've got a telescope, you know, point it at the planet. Um, I mean, I'm I'm always taken aback when I look at Saturn. I just think it's so gorgeous to see mm. those rings around it. I mean, the other planets, yeah, they're interesting, but they haven't got rings. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Saturn's got the rings, and it, and it, it really catches people's attention. I've done quite a few public events, and I've shown people Saturn, and it's like, he really has got rings. And you think, well, it is called a ring planet for a reason. <laughs> the the thing I, I've always noticed whenever, because in order to look at something like Jupiter, um, that is a beautiful planet and it has all of these bandings and the great red spot. Um, but you do need to to really know what you're doing and have quite a good instrument to be able to actually see those visually. Whereas with Saturn, we relatively quickly and relatively easily, you can see its 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 ears as they were yeah. first called. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and the it, appendages. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's one of those very like easy things to see, and and it does look absolutely spectacular. If you have never seen the rings of Saturn, highly recommend it. Oh, definitely. I mean, I I actually uh, have seen them in spotting scopes, and uh, so if you've got bird watching spotting scopes, put it on Saturn. Um, because uh, you can see it, and even the larger binoculars will give an impression that Saturn is is odd. It's not right. You know, Jupiter's round. Saturn's what is it? Oblong? It was like strange, elliptical. Mm. You know, so you know there's something strange about it. And of course, it, with a telescope, you might better split the A and B rings with the Cassini division between them, and you'll see hopefully the dusky northern band and the darker polar hood as well. But don't forget, there's got a whole retinue of satellites. You know, moons going around it. The brightest of Titan. So Titan is actually quite well. So you can see Titan in large binoculars and follow that going around. It's about 16 days for the orbital period. So uh, that's worth looking at as well. So it is a gorgeous planet, and I never tire uh, looking at it. And um, so the beauty now, of course, is that once it reaches opposition, it means that you're going to see it more and more in the evening sky. And I always find that with a planet in the morning sky, it doesn't get the attention unless you're a real diehard astronomer, you know, or somebody really into uh, looking out for the planets. Um, whereas if you're a casual observer, you start to notice from now on, you'll start to notice it more because it's becoming earlier and earlier um, and better place to observe at a more convenient time so uh, you know so people can get out and see it when they're walking the dog perhaps sort of thing you know just before they go to bed they can actually see it over in the southeast so uh, yeah it's a, it's a gorgeous planet and from now on it can only improve as long as we've got the weather <laughs> as long as we've got the clear weather but uh, mm -hmm. it is uh, definitely well worth looking out for now uh, especially now it's past opposition 
Now we've got an odd event. Um, I'm I'm one of those that I like difficult ones, but August the fifth, you know. So we've moved on a few days now, and August the fifth, the crescent moon is in the morning sky again. Sadly, you have to get up, yes, but you have to be looking towards the north northeast. And uh, really look around about, I don't know, so about 3.30-ish again, sort of thing, fairly early morning. But uh, I like it when the crescent moon is close to, or, or in this case, touching effectively a cluster, a star cluster. And it's a nice bright star cluster called Messier 35. It isn't as bright and splashy as, say, the Pleiades, um, which are real. I mean, they're bright, naked eye stars. I mean, any, people see between six and nine stars, naked eye. Uh, my best was nine sort of thing, but uh, nowadays with glasses, it's, it's dropped down, sadly, I'm afraid. But the thing is, M35, it is a nice cluster in Gemini. It's at the feet of Castor, one of the twins of Gemini. And you've got this crescent moon, and it's actually covering some of the topmost, the northernmost stars in M35. So although there'll be a bit of light from the moon, I have to say, because it's a crescent, it won't be quite as bad as, say, you wouldn't really try this at half phase or full phase because it would drown out the stars completely. But this is a chance to see this star cluster, this faint star cluster. You'll see only the brightest members, but put a telescope on it or large binoculars, and you should see the crescent moon and then this faint sprinkling of light stardust <laughs> in the background. Of course, it's, again, it's a line mm-hmm. of sight effect, but normally they're often quite a distance apart sort of thing. So this is an unusual one. In fact, it actually appears to be overlapping the cluster itself. So mm-hmm. uh, I love these sort of events, as I say, because they're, they're a bit more of a challenge. It's nice to have a bit of a challenge, isn't it, um, to push yourself a little bit more observation, whether you're doing it photographically or whether you're doing it visually. So uh, there we are. That does sound like a, a remarkable photo opportunity. So if there's anybody out there who's who's looking for a, a target this month, maybe that's the one they want to try. It's definitely a challenge because they're getting the balance right between the crescent moon. And, of course, it, the crescent moon will also show the Earth shine. So uh, it'll be a good idea to try to get a sequence of pictures and merge them together to show all three, the cluster, the Earth shine, and the moon, nah, nah, the, the daylight side of the moon. Now, that's a challenge. So, uh, yeah, that, that's a, hang on, I might try that. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it, listeners. If any of you fancy doing that particular challenge and you manage to be successful, make sure you send it into the magazine. They're so almost atmosphere. Atmospheric is the wrong word in one way, but they are beguiling in many ways because you see this. But don't leave it too long because as the sky gets lighter and the the moon will start to creep away. So uh, well worth doing it at the right time. Um, the time actually I've got set for a chart that I produced was actually just gone too. It's about 2.20. So uh, if you leave it later, you'll see the moon will have crept a bit further away from the cluster itself. So uh, about 2.20 and they'll be over in the east then. Mm. Yes. Remember, the moon does move over the course of the night. It's surprising. <laughs> you know, when it's close to a, a bright, I say, a star or a planet or or an object like this, you begin to realise how much it actually moves, even during the course of an hour. So, mm. um, and this is the beauty about occultation works. And I don't observe occultations. You suddenly realise just how much that moon moves. <laughs> 
Now, a few days later, we're talking about August the 10th and 11th. Let's do something nice and easy. Let's get back to the evenings guy that we're all more familiar with. And it's still lightish nights, isn't it, at the moment? But if you're in the evening twilight, you want to be looking about half an hour after sunset towards the west. And we've still got Venus. Venus is, it's like, I'm determined not to go. You've had me for several months now, lingering along the sort of western horizon. I'm still going to stay here for a while. And it does. And in fact, it will improve later in the year, quite amazingly. Even though you'd expect it to disappear, it will actually start to improve. And that's the combination of the ecliptic sort of thing gradually beginning to steepen as we get on later in the year, heading towards September and October. But uh, back to now, on the 10th and 11th, you shouldn't really need <laughs> the moon to guide you to Venus. Because Venus, I, was, I actually looked at it just a few nights ago. I was amazed. We had an evening twilight that was clear. Typical, the one night that uh, I, I thought, oh, it's clear, might get noctilucents. The noctilucent clouds were brilliant the night before. That night, absolutely zilch. So it waits until I have a clear mm -hmm. night to go away. But uh, So they're still around, but we'll start dissipating when we get into August. But on the 10th, look to the right of Venus, and there'll be a lovely slim crescent moon there. The moon will have swung into the evening sky by then. And then on the 11th, the crescent moon will be a bit thicker, but it's to the upper left of Venus as well. I say you shouldn't really need the moon to guide you to Venus, but in this particular case, usually you can spot, if you spot the moon in daylight, and be careful, of course, with the sun not being too far. I always hide the sun behind our house when I want to look at something like this to block the view of the sun. But uh, then you use binoculars. You can use the moon because that's easier to see. You can use the moon then to find the tiny pinpoint of light in daylight. That is Venus. And yet when you get into twilight, Venus dominates because it's such a, a bright planet itself. So uh, there we are, 10th and 11th, you've got the crescent moon passing Venus in the uh, western skies. And I say, we'll keep Venus all months. So you'll be able to keep an eye on that as it lingers there. Now, we come to August the 12th. No, Ezzy, no, no, I'm not talking about the event usually for August the 12th. We've got another little one beforehand um, because we do like conjunctions. And again, we've got a chance to see really the last gasp of seeing the minor world Vesta. Now, Vesta's deep in the twilight now. So normally you probably wouldn't bother with it sort of thing. You usually observe it probably when it's darker skies. But again, if you look around about 9.30 in the evening, you should be able to find the moon quite well. I mean, that's obvious, isn't it? But to its right, there'll be a, a brightish star. This is Porima, Gamma Virginis. And the thing about it is that directly above, as we look on the sky, I'm not talking about north as in sort of the orientation of the sky and the, the way we do right ascension and declination. It is literally above um, Porima, forming a triangle, and we've got Vesta. Now, again, you'll need binoculars to try and find it, but it is a reasonable brightness. It's about seven and a half magnitude. So, you know, it isn't impossible, but it might be your last chance to see Vesta. And it's just nicely, conveniently, directly above Porima. And, of course, we've got the moon to guide us to both. So there we are, a nice group in there to have a go at as well. But August the 12th, the peak of the Perseids meteor shower. I mean... This is the one I always look forward to, mainly because you know it's going to be, hopefully, reasonally mild nights. <laughs> mm. I, I love the Geminids later in the year, but, oh, they can be cold. I mean, a lot yeah. more meteors, but it's cold, isn't it? Yeah, the, the Geminids in December, they're... 
they're physically challenging. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's staying out on a uh, on a December night. <laughs> Exactly. If you, I mean, we always recommend having a lounger for, to, to watch meetings. But if you're in a lounger in December sort of thing, you know, uh, lounging back, you've got to be really well wrapped up and uh, and not worry that you don't fall asleep, you know, sort of thing. It's one of these things. It's better to have a group of people around you. Mind you, everybody probably would fall asleep if you get too comfortable. But uh, this is this is barb- hopefully barbecue season still. The Zenith hourly rate, which is the theoretical best rate if you're looking directly above you to the clearest part of the sky, uh, is put at around about 100. But the trouble is you don't usually see that. That's 100 per hour. Um, um, and that's under absolutely perfect, you know, conditions. And let's face it, we don't mm-hmm. have perfect conditions, do we, like yeah. that? <laughs> if, you were, if you were staring at exactly the right point in a perfectly clear sky <laughs> with perfectly dark sky, which doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly sort of thing. But it, it, it's a guide, but you always have to... I, uh, I know Pete, uh, Lawrence and I, we've discussed this before, and uh, basically you're looking at around about a quarter or a fifth of the actual rate. But don't let that put you off because I've found they come in flurries often. And so you, you'll get one and you keep watching, then suddenly you get two, three, and then it'll go quiet and probably have five, ten minutes and nothing happens. And then you get another flurry. <clears throat> so it's well worth looking out for them. And the great news this year is that the although the moon is in the early evening sky, it does set um, around about 11-ish. So the thing is, sort of thing, you know, you will, I mean, it's low. So it doesn't, as it gets lower, the moonlight doesn't really interfere as much. And so, you know, it's well worth looking out for. And the radiant in the northeast and gradually getting higher during the course of the night. Uh, it's not too far away from the top end of Perseus itself, hence they're called the Perseids. And so it's well worth keeping a lookout. And I say it's not that cold. And uh, you you often find the best way is to look not quite at the radiant itself. Look away. We always say about 60 to 90 degrees away from the radiant because that's where the streaks are going to be the longest because they're hitting hmm. the angle. If you're looking straight towards the radiant, you're looking into them. It's a bit like, you know, when you're driving. I mean, this is a reminder of winter now, but if you're right driving sort of thing and there's rain driving towards you, what happens is the rain looks as if it's coming straight at you, doesn't it? Because you're mm. driving into it. doesn't necessarily mean it is because it's falling from the sky, but you're driving into it. So it looks as if it's coming straight at you sort of thing. So, you know, you don't see much in the way of streaks. But if you look at the side of the wind, you just see the, the rain streaking past the actual car side window and it'll be a long streak. And that's the same with the sky. If you look straight towards the radiant, looking into it, so they're almost head on. So they're very tiny streaks. You do get some dramatic ones, I have to say. I've had some really nice ones that are really short but bright. So they're a nice surprise. But the best ones are actually to the side. So you look around and that gives you quite a large area of sky. You can sort of look from the great bear, the little bear, Draco, Hercules, or Cygnus. Cepheus and Pegasus, and you often find they're the, where you're going to get the longest streak sort of thing of the meteors. So it really is a good one. I said the, the moon will actually set after 11 o'clock, and so there'll be no moonlight. You'll have darker skies as well, so you'll have quite a long time to observe as long as you've got clear skies. And uh, this is this is one which is at least more uh, favourable in terms of, the, you know, as, you, as we say, being nice and warm or relatively warm compared with the depths of winter when we have meteor showers then. Yeah, hopefully, even even if it's a bit cloudy and you're trying to fight through that, because that's one of the things I, I like about meteor showers, because they go on throughout the entire night and you never know when one's going to appear. Um, even if there is a bit of cloud in the night sky, 
Um, I always say, if it's partially cloudy, that means it's partially clear. I like that. Oh, that's so positive. I love it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Sort of thing. You might get that one. And I'll tell you what, I, I it's happened a couple of times, but I've had the odd meteor in the gap. And I'll tell you what, it actually makes it feel more special. It's almost like he's been mm. framed. <laughs> so, yes, even if the, the weather isn't 100% brilliant, even if there is a bit of clouds, it is still worth trying to get out there and, and observe the meteor. Um Make it a bit of a challenge. Can you see one through the clouds? So that's on the, the 12th uh, will be the peak of the Perseid meteor shower. But what is happening in the second half of the month, Paul? Well, we get into the opposition of Jupiter, which occurs on, you could say, on the late night of the 19th into the 20th. Uh, my records show that it's uh, from the U.S. Naval Observatory that it's it's literally on the borderline. It's zero GMT. That is, of course. So if you actually add British summertime to that, really, it's one o'clock in the morning on the twentieth. But it's just literally on that borderline. So view from the nineteenth to the twentieth, and that's the opposition night of Jupiter. And as we mentioned, actually, with Saturn, sort of thing, this is now when it's visible the best. You get it all night, sort of thing. It sets as the sun. Uh, it rises as sunsets and vice versa. And so, you know, and it gives us our longest time to view it. Although, as we mentioned earlier, sort of thing, we're in a position whereby they're in a place, they're in the sky where they're in Capricornus. And the last few years, you don't get as long a session because it's in the summer sky of these oppositions. But the good news with Jupiter is that it moves a lot quicker. Remember, its orbital period is about 12 years. So it is moving quite a, a decent amount each year, almost an entire constellation on. And so it is now climbing the ecliptic and it is definitely going to improve. So uh, the, where we've had over the last few years, it low down in Sagittarius sort of thing and, and low haze, anything can actually spoil the view. And certainly imaging wise, it doesn't help us. Now it's beginning that climb up and it will climb quite rapidly over the next few years into really favorable observing. So now's the time to get it sort of thing. Opposition, it creeps back into the evening sky from now on, making it a lot easier to observe. You mentioned earlier, the Jupiter's got the bands, that you know, the two main bands. The red spot needs a bit more work sort of thing. And, um, well, red spot, I mean, you know, uh, ochre, <laughs> <laughs> pale salmon colour sort of thing, you know, it is it is actually quite faint. Yeah, it has been fading in colour over recent years. Yeah, it's, it's shrinking as well sort of thing. So uh, I let a lot of speculation as are we going to lose the great red spot? Um, it could be that we don't know, do we? We don't know whether that's a phase and whether it might grow again. We, you know, as a late great Patrick Moore say, quite frankly, we don't really know. Uh, you know, so uh, that's a terrible impersonation, I know, but I've got the initials PM to go with it. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it is, it, uh, you know, so, and of course, the great red spot is one of those things that it, because it, you know, the planet rotates in just under 10 hours. I mean, that's a fast rotation. I mean, we're just ambling along, aren't we, with about 24 hours, but Jupiter, 10 hours just to turn once. So you can see the turning of the planet quite quickly. And you begin to realize that features are actually drift across. And they're not drifting across the surface of Jupiter. It's Jupiter actually turning. So, you know, it's I always find it's sad, really, but I always find the other side of Jupiter relatively boring when you know the great red spot isn't visible sort of thing. You know, but there are plumes and features that you can see with a telescope. So it is still worth looking at as well. And, of course, 
you've got the four Galilean moons, uh, which are easily uh, visible in. You can see them in binoculars. Um, it, it is a bit of a challenge because they're quite close to Jupiter and you usually have to observe them when they're at their furthest from the planet. But, uh, you know, definitely have a go at Jupiter and see if you can pick out the moons. And obviously a telescope will show them. And uh, if you look at the highlights, the August highlights in the magazine, Pete brings out the fact that we're going through a phase at the moment with the opposition that you actually get some mutual events with these moons as well. So, so the moons are occulting each other. And of course, they're passing in front of the planet as well. So you've not just got the moon passing in front, you've got the shadow of the moon actually transiting across the disk as well. So there's lots to see. So now that Jupiter is at opposition, it will start to get easier to see in the evening sky. So, uh, you know, I, I again, I always read, opposition, yes, it's going to be easy for me. I don't have to stay up so late. <laughs> Call myself an astronomer. Good grief. But, you know, I, I'm still human. <laughs> I still have to get up in the morning at times as such. But uh, one of those things. Now, that was actually on the 19th, 20th. But interestingly, our moon joins in the fun over the next few days because on the 20th, it lies sort of below Saturn. So, uh, you know, so we got there and then it forms a triangle. So the moon forms a very long sort of triangle, not quite a right angle triangle with Saturn and Jupiter on the 21st. And then on the 22nd, uh, the moon is to the lower left of Jupiter itself. So our moon has to get in on the act, doesn't it, Ezzy, sort of thing. It, it does. Now, mind you, it, it goes around so much and it passes so much, it's going to get into the act and many features. Mm -hmm. That's why it features so much in our star diaries as such, because it's so busy. So we're nearly at the end now. And, um, you know, we, we jumped to August the 30th because we mentioned the moon passing through Taurus right at the start of the month, the second, third and the fourth. Well, when it does that, it means that the end of the month, it's got to be somewhere close to that vicinity again. And on the 30th, it's directly in a line between the Pleiades, Messier 45, and the Hyades and Aldebaran as well. So if you miss it on the early part of the month, you've got the end of the month and you'll find the moon once again back in Taurus. And I'm saying this time, it's actually between the two clusters and the bright star as well. So it's a nice way to finish off the month in actual, although again, it has to be an early morning start for that one as well. Um, so there we are. That's the main events actually for uh, the I can cover. Um, have, you, have you got anything you want to add, Ezzy? <laughs> no, it sounds like it's going to be a pretty full month. So uh, to go back over that, our recommendations for the month were right at the beginning, uh, on the 1st of August, Uranus will be next to the moon. Um, then the following night, on the 2nd of August, Saturn will be at opposition at its closest approach to Earth. Then on the 5th of August, the crescent moon will pass through the cluster M35. And that should be a great observing opportunity and maybe even a bit of a photograph opportunity if you fancy a bit of a challenge. Then on the 10th and the 11th, you'll have Venus passing through the evening sky. On the 12th of August, we will have the Perseid meteor shower. Um, so if you're listening to this, if you're a, a bit of a beginner, maybe, or even if you're an advanced person who's just looking for a nice, relaxed observing session throughout the night, always make sure to check out the Perseids Meteor Shower. Then finally, at the end of the month, on the 19th and the 20th, we have the opposition of Jupiter. So if you fancy getting to see those bands of Jupiter, maybe even spotting the great um, the Great Salmon Spot doesn't quite have the same <laughs> ring to it, so I'll keep calling it the Great Red Spot. That's the 19th to the 20th. 
um, that night, you'll be able to see that over on Jupiter. So thank you very much for joining us today, Paul, um, and giving us that that detailed account of what's coming up in the night sky this month. Thank you, Izzy. If you want to find out even more about the spectacular sights that will be gracing the night sky this month, be sure to pick up a copy of BBC Sky at Night magazine, where we have a 16-page pull-out sky guide with a full overview of everything worth looking up for in the August 2021 night sky. Whether you like to look at the moon, the planets or the deep sky, whether you use binoculars, telescopes or neither, our Sky Guide has you covered with detailed star charts to help you track your way across the night sky. From everybody here at BBC Sky at Night magazine, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Star Diary podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Brittany Collie. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skynightmagazine.com or head to Acast, iTunes or Spotify. 